Chapter thirty two of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume two by Moncure Conway. Chapter thirty two, Part two. Gladstone was the most famous orator of England to the outside world, but this reputation was largely due to his limitations. He uttered innumerable commonplaces with an air of profundity. He never worried the average man by any original thought or idea, and he pleased the great mass by speeches that were in large part preaching. The preaching was always orthodox, and it was just that mixture of Anglicanism, Evangelism, Puritanism, and Philistine moralism which supplied three-fourths of the pulpits, both church and nonconformist, with quotations. Of all the great laymen, he was the only one left who seriously defended the orthodox dogmas. Other statesmen might utter compliments to Christianity without going into particulars. They might value the Christian system as a national institution, but the defense of the orthodox dogmas in detail had long been only professional and salaried, but for Gladstone. And now that he is dead, it would be hard to find any Englishman of recognized scholarship and competency, not in orders, who would defend orthodox dogmas. Although Gladstone's parliamentary sermons did not, of course, go into articles of faith, he printed numerous theological tracts of the kind, and his speeches were sufficiently suffused with the moral accent related to dogma for responsive chords to be touched in church, chapel, and conventicle. Gladstone's lack of humor raised more laughs than most people's humor. I heard him speak on the reduction of the tax on pepper and he so ensouled Pepper that it seemed to be flying about the hall, and one must cry, Pepper for the masses. An Oxford professor told me that just before a formal meeting of the faculty of Lincoln College, it was learned that Gladstone was on a visit to the master of Christ's College. They wished to have him at the meeting and get a speech out of him, but the difficulty was that they had no subject to discuss. But one professor remembered that there had been some question whether about twenty old books that had always been on a shelf in a corridor should not be removed to the library, and they resolved to make that motion, though quite unimportant, an excuse for getting up a discussion. Gladstone came with his host, and took the discussion seriously. Gentlemen, he said, it was remarked by the distinguished professor who raised this important discussion that he did not wish to take the responsibility of changing the location of these volumes without receiving an order from the entire faculty and it seems that the faculty hesitate to take the responsibility gentlemen there have been times when the faculty of lincoln college has assumed great responsibility and i trust that it is still prepared to assume great responsibilities when changes become necessary we live gentlemen in times when emergencies arrive and so on proceeded gladstone with solemn periods for fifteen minutes about a matter which the professor supposed would bring out some witty anecdotes but had not expected would afford them just the kind of amusement received gladstone was not beloved 
he was a strong statesman without being a great man he was so entirely occupied by official duty that no room seemed to be left for those apparently small but really vital personal sympathies and relations which belong to real greatness i was several times in evening companies where he was present when he entered it was as if in state all talk and mirth were suspended and we stood around and bowed to him and his wife and his escort he returning our bows all around as if we were some delegation he would move near the hostess introductions would follow but there was no free and easy chat with individuals happily he did not remain long on such occasions and the young people were enabled without much interruption of gaiety to cherish a remembrance of the grand old man he was an institution how can one love an institution a member told me that he asked another liberal why he disliked gladstone the reply was oh he is always so damnably in the right no doubt i shared at that time the strong feeling of the italian french and german refugees and their circle in london against gladstone on account of the treatment of garibaldi but both the statesman as well as my humble self was to have a good many instructive experiences and in the course of time when i saw gladstone save england from four wars and even mobbed and literally hustled with his wife from their house into the street because of his resistance to a warlike project against russia i recognized in him the true representative of english humanity richard cobden fairly fulfilled my ideal of a parliamentary leader there was in his look his clear eye in the mingled dignity and graciousness of his manner the flash as of some unsheathable excalibur guarding the nobler from the baser england i used to watch him from my seat in the speaker's gallery while discussions were going on such as those involving the united states and recognized a man without egotism whose every word was that of one knowing the special strength entrusted to him he fitted exactly a story emerson told me when cobden was in the thick of the struggle against the corn laws one of his little children asked mamma who is that gentleman that comes here sometimes never was there a more affectionate domestic character soon after my arrival in england i had the pleasure of breakfasting with cobden in his rooms near westminster hall and wondered at the extent of his knowledge of our affairs in america mill cairns f w newman and fawcett were among the few i met in england who had closely studied the constitutional history of the united states but cobden knew also the details of our situation he had travelled in the united states north and south and personally knew the leading men in both sections he had seen a good deal of jefferson davis who was even then he said thinking of war as a probability one thing cobden said astounded me he had once travelled with jefferson davis and mcclellan together and davis whispered to him that in case of a war that man is one of the first we should put into service the proceedings in the house of commons on the day of cobden's death april three eighteen sixty five were affecting i had a place in the speaker's galley and that which impressed me especially was the way in which the grief of the whole house did away with formalities as the deep-toned westminster clock slowly struck four 
the members moved in silently as if summoned by a knell the ministers following not one spoke to another as they sat in silence with their hats on i felt as if once more in a meeting of friends at this moment all eyes were turned to the door as the greatest of friends entered john bright with head bowed under his sorrow john bright walked to his place by the side of which there was a vacancy never to be filled when palmerston arose there rang through the hall something like a cry followed by a deep hush as the white-haired old man who had seen the leading men of more than two generations fall at his side began to speak his voice quivered and recovered itself only when it sank to a low tone that was deeply pathetic having recounted the instances in which cobden had been signally useful to his country each instance followed by the refusal of proffered honors and emoluments he said mr cobden's name will be forever engraved on the most interesting pages of the history of this country when disraeli arose to speak concerning the man whom he had met only in combat his touching tribute made me feel how irresistible is the force of a right and true man no mere politician could ever have brought a lifelong antagonist to stand by his grave and say i believe that when the verdict of posterity is recorded on his life and conduct it will be said of him that looking to all he said and did he was without doubt the greatest political character the pure middle class of this country has yet produced an ornament to the house of commons and an honor to england then as if trying to lift a great burden arose john bright twice he tried to speak and his voice failed at length with broken utterance he said a few words the last being after twenty years of most intimate and brotherly friendship with him i little knew how much i loved him until i had lost him as the large manly orator spoke these simple words plaintively as a child his tears came thick and fast and a wave of emotion passed through the house and galleries six months after the death of cobden died palmerston when palmerston begged cobden to enter his cabinet the answer was i am necessarily your lordship's antagonist after forty years the england of cobden seems tending to absorption in the england of palmerston but in eighteen sixty five the two were distinct as positive and negative poles in his eighty-one years palmerston had followed england when england wore shoe-buckles and queues he wore them when england shed those old leaves he shed them a tory when england was tory a whig when england was whig a liberal now proposing reforms now paralyzing them he was faithful to his motto flecti non frangi braver men who would not bend were broken but palmerston was in miniature his nation which in its history had not been broken because it could bend his funeral brought out all the surviving splendors of the old regime i followed the cortege from cambridge house and saw him buried in westminster abbey between pitt and fox with canning at his feet and the statue of chatham rising above him when the hearse with its forest of plumes started from the enclosure of his mansion it was followed by the solemn royal coaches but the procession was made gay by the procession of gaudy mayoral coaches 
brought from edinburgh liverpool and other cities and by the forty costumed corporations like some huge primeval saurian with glittering scales passing to its fossil bed the palmerston cortege slowly crawled to the abbey the prince of wales edward the seventh and the duke of cambridge entered with the dean and half the nobility of england were present the procession had come through sunshine but just as lord thin was reading about the trumpet that was to sound a storm broke over the abbey which became so dark that the clergy were nearly invisible the rain fell heavily the wind howled about the old walls and in that darkness the body was lowered gold rings instead of dust falling on the coffin it was grand to hear the voice of the invisible organ coming out of the darkness to accompany the choristers singing his body is buried in peace when the grave was covered over the sun came out again lighting up the monuments but the vast swarm of people outside had been dispersed by the storm no saint in history ever had so magnificent a funeral as this worldly old lord that evening i passed with carlyle who told me many interesting incidents and anecdotes about palmerston ending with the words farewell old friend many a man of less worth will be seen in your place but how slight was the excitement caused by the death of either cobden or palmerston compared with that which filled great britain when president lincoln fell the fete of victory in america had extended to england and at aubrey house there was a grand dinner company john bright was present probably his first appearance in company after the death of cobden before the dinner had ended the butler came in and whispered to peter taylor who sprang to his feet and said the newsboys were crying the murder of lincoln we all arose the gentlemen rushing to the street to get the papers it was between nine and ten in the evening when we received confirmation of the appalling news after the death of lincoln my tribute to him appeared in the june fortnightly review personal recollections of president lincoln i said all that it was possible for me to say in appreciation of him as a striking personality in fraser for june my article went into the political situation entailed i had high hopes that andrew johnson who had shown some strength of character might prove a better president to carry out emancipation than lincoln for lincoln had fallen on the very day when he had celebrated the fall of the confederacy by repeating promises to the white south alone that filled anti-slavery people with anxiety there was fear that we should find him thereafter ready to amnesty slavery itself abraham lincoln ten years before his election to the presidency was for a short time in congress his brief career there was marked by one proposal and one utterance the proposal was that there should be added to a measure for abolishing slavery in the district of columbia a provision for the rendition of their owners of slaves escaping into the district which otherwise might be crowded with negroes seeking asylum there he was the same man when see chapter twenty three he said to our deputation suppose i should put in the south these anti-slavery generals and governors what could they do with the slaves that would come to them his notable utterance in congress was his description of military glory as that rainbow that rises in showers of blood that serpent eye that charms but to destroy when he became president lincoln wrote privately to a quaker 
your people have had and are having very great trials on principles and faith opposed to both war and oppression they can only practically oppose oppression by war but the very state that fired on fort sumter had candidly indicated to the new president before that event how both secession and oppression could be vanquished without war representative ashmore of south carolina said in congress the south can sustain more men in the field than the north her four millions of slaves alone will enable her to support an army of half a million president lincoln had only to use the war power thrust into his hand by slavery to proclaim those four millions free the boasted commissariat of the southern army would have existed no longer when every northern camp was the slave's asylum slavery the teterima causa would have needed every southern white to guard it repeatedly was this urged on the president along with the fact that every loyalist slave might be paid for with a month's cost of war in his message to congress december eighteen sixty three the president said of those who were slaves at the beginning of the rebellion full one hundred thousand are now in the united states military service about half of which number actually bear arms in the ranks thus giving the double advantage of taking so much labor from the insurgent cause etc the president had precisely the same right to take four million of black laborers from the insurgent cause as one hundred thousand with the millionfold advantage of preventing the war altogether after three hundred thousand soldiers had been slaughtered thousands of families draped in mourning commerce by land and sea paralyzed hostility towards england and france engendered thousands of fugitive slaves thrust back into slavery and billions of money wasted the president came no nearer meeting oppression with liberty than to put his livery on one hundred thousand negroes set them to cut the throats of their former masters and sow new seeds of race hatred the evils of slavery as a domestic institution were mere pimples compared with the evils of war the greater evils of slavery were that it kept the country generally in a state of chronic war now and then breaking out into acute eruptions such as the murderous robbery of mexico and the outrages of kansas when secession seemed to be slavery withdrawing from its aggressiveness anti-slavery men welcomed it when the firing on fort sumter seemed to be another war on liberty we felt that liberty had to be defended even when it was plain that the war was being waged by the president not for liberty but solely for the union the probabilities that it would somehow eradicate the root of discord from the nation rendered it necessary to support the northern side there being no prospect of stopping the war but slavery originated in war and in eighteen sixty four it became clear that the war which we were trying to turn against slavery was protecting it habeas corpus was suspended free speech suppressed men were drafted and torn from their families by violence to fight the south slaves were armed and put on much less than the pay given white soldiers and in eighteen sixty four the first attempt to reconstruct a rebel state louisiana was by forcing the loyal negroes to work for their old masters all rebels albeit for paltry wages the disloyal whites were to have suffrage but not the blacks the prospect was that in all the reconstructed states 
slavery was to return as serfdom most of the letters received from my american friends were full of despair and one from senator sumner was pathetic washington july thirty eighteen sixty six dear mr conway if i have not written to you before it was because my engagements left me no time and now that congress has closed i can do little more than make my apologies i thank you for your vigilant testimony to the good cause which has suffered infinitely first through the terrible tergiversation of the president and secondly through the imbecility of congress which shrank from a contest on principle if congress had willed it we would have carried a bill for political rights as well as for civil rights and on precisely the same argument that it was needed in the enforcement of the prohibition of slavery i tried hard but could not bring congress to this duty but i do not give it up the president is singularly reticent but his prejudices are strong with seward as counsellor nobody can tell what he will forbear his policy has been arrested by congress but this has been by a deadlock rather than by establishing a contrary system meanwhile all true unionists from the south testify alike unless something is done they will be constrained to leave their homes on this the testimony is concurring whether from texas or north carolina governor hamilton has left texas but cannot return other unionists are following his example i have succeeded during this term in creating a commission for the revision and consolidation of the statutes of the united states i have also carried through the senate bills that have already passed the house for the introduction of the metric system of weights and measures and to these i stopped in the senate their bad banks bill repealing our neutrality statute after it had passed the house unanimously these are incidents of the service which i mention with personal satisfaction and now for the future god is with us i shall fight the battle to the end you will also ever sincerely yours charles sumner after all the metric system was never adopted but what mattered such things at a moment when the united states was being driven daily towards the fearful precipice the pathos of sumner's letter was the evidence in it that he had been excluded from the arena all he could now say was god is with us it had troubled me much that in september eighteen sixty three senator sumner had delivered in new york an arraignment of england which seemed to me unjust and still more in eighteen sixty four that he had not arraigned president lincoln for his policy in louisiana this policy senator sumner defeated after lincoln's re-election but during his strange nine months silence i expressed my lamentation that the president should have for the time overborne the voice of our abdul in the capital for the fidelity of whose heart there could be no misgiving four months after the president's assassination came the following letter from senator sumner boston fifteenth august eighteen sixty five my dear sir i honor you so much for the dedication of your genius so completely to the cause of human freedom that i cannot be angry even when i think you do injustice to a fellow laborer like myself it was a mistake to imagine that i have ever intended to support the bank's reconstruction policy my hostility to it was declared often to general banks 
and to the president himself down to the last moment i was not without hope that i might induce the president to change his mind on one occasion he said to me i cannot answer your argument but i think it can be answered no not if you take till doomsday i replied and when i found the president persevering i determined to oppose his louisiana scheme you know the result people from new orleans say that general banks now declares that all the rebel states not omitting louisiana must be kept out of the union for some time to come there was another moment more interesting if possible than that of louisiana where i thought you did me injustice it was in the autumn of eighteen sixty three when as i knew we were on the brink of war with england throughout the month of august lord russell had point-blank refused to stop the rams on the fourth september mr adams wrote this is war on the tenth september i spoke in new york according to the information in my possession feeling that possibly at the last moment i might obtain a hearing and determined at least that if war came my speech should portray the character of the relations england would have assumed it was an anxious painful moment and i spoke according to my conscience as well as knowledge knowing well that i should expose myself to misconception and to reproach but resolved to make my appeal the rams were stopped two days before my speech was made if you will kindly look at that speech you will see that it was no perfunctory effort of haste or passion but that it was done carefully and solemnly that at the time our peril from england was greater than from france and that therefore england occupied more attention that curiously and here is a curiosity of diplomacy louis napoleon who has always been against us has carefully avoided stinging and offensive letters so that positively we have nothing to object to france except one the concession of belligerency two the proffer of mediation and three the mexican invasion while hardly a packet came without an offensive dispatch from lord russell and you will see that in my speech i did not fail to expose the conduct of louis napoleon fully and strongly so that the french translator did not dare to reproduce that part of the speech this being so i was astonished and pained when i found myself charged with having said nothing of france and done injustice to england i cannot do injustice to england i know her and love her too well but i have always opposed at home all complicity with slavery and when i saw england by that most unhappy and utterly indefensible concession of belligerency prelude to the tragedy of our war without which it would have been very brief i felt unhappy as when daniel webster supported the fugitive slave bill you will understand this illustration but enough of these things the contest now assumes a new form the president johnson has failed us i saw him often down to the day of leaving washington and i had every reason to suppose that there was the utmost harmony between us indeed he said to me there is no difference between us you and i are alike on this question but god is stronger than the president our cause cannot be lost there is present uncertainty and solicitude but we shall prevail of this be sure and what a country we shall then have good-bye ever sincerely yours charles sumner
that sumner had privately pleaded against the proposed serfdom in louisiana no assurance was needed his leniency to lincoln in public no doubt appeared to him necessary to defeat the democratic pro-slavery candidate and the president was re-elected with andrew johnson as vice-president the man who in tennessee had pleaded that the only way to save their slaves was to come back into the union sumner's inopportune diatribe against england appears to me the greatest error of his life it came at a time when all england was coming to our side and when the moral unanimity was of practical importance i knew well the design of seward to supersede sumner as chairman of the senate committee of foreign affairs a removal that he would have patriotic as well as personal reasons to dread and could only explain the attack at that moment as made under a kind of duress the speech would have been fair enough when settlements were to be made but the ingenuities of professional advocacy were not yet in order the recognition of the confederacy by england as a belligerent was not in hostility president lincoln was by exchanges of prisoners and otherwise himself recognizing it as such and had not england recognized the belligerency it must have made itself an auxiliary in the war on the south dealing with them as pirates and outlaws senator sumner's own complaints at home of the repudiation by the administration of any anti-slavery purpose in the war and the assurance through minister adams that slavery would not be affected by the war were the official instructions of earl russell the case against england was good in law but it was unfair to bring in the count about slavery in eighteen sixty two the alabama escaped because of the sudden illness lunacy of the queen's advocate sir r p harding at the critical moment after that no privateer escaped two days before sumner's attack on england the rams were stopped lord john russell's offensive dispatches were fair rejoinders to the efforts of seward to foment trouble of which sumner himself informed me see chapter twenty two for lord john i had no admiration but he stopped four confederate rams at a cost to england of nearly three million pounds and under his neutrality the union got a thousandfold more from england than the confederacy before the war sumner in an oration on the true grandeur of nations said war is known as the last reason of kings let it be no reason of our republic early in the war october eighteen sixty one in his speech emancipation our best weapon he proved that the sword could not conquer slavery the president's refusal to recognize the belligerency of slavery was what prolonged the war sumner agreed with the rest of us in that and his discovery late in eighteen sixty three that it was all england's fault sounded like seward in the above letter speaking of johnson sumner says but god is stronger than the president we shall prevail and what a country we shall have what a country poor sumner presently found himself in a country that degraded him in the senate degraded him in his own state and death alone saved him from witnessing the fulfillment of his worst fear uttered beside the fresh grave of lincoln alas for the dead who have given themselves so bravely to their country alas for the living 
who have been left to mourn the dead. If any relic of slavery is allowed to continue, especially if this bloody impostor, defeated in the pretension of property in man, is allowed to perpetuate an oligarchy of the skin. While recognizing Abraham Lincoln's strong personality and high good qualities, I cannot participate in his canonization. The mass of mankind see in all great historic events the hand of God. Having no such faith, I see in the Union War a great catastrophe. President Lincoln, in disregard of the anti-coercion sentiment of press and pulpit, and without consulting Congress, assumed the individual responsibility of sending a half million men to their graves for the sake of a flag. Wilkes Booth assumed the individual responsibility of sending Lincoln to his grave for the sake of another flag. In accepting the challenge at Fort Sumter, as Sumner rightly phrased it, Abraham Lincoln decided that the fate of his country should be determined by powder and shot. In the canonization of Lincoln, there lurks a consecration of the sword. The method of slaughter is credited with having abolished slavery, but by the same method Booth placed in the presidential chair a tipsy tailor from Tennessee, who founded in the South a reign of terror over the Negro race, which has suffered more physically since the war began than under the previous century of slavery, and the white race has suffered in character to such an extent that our presidential father Abraham, who persisted in sacrificing his Isaacs instead of the brute caught in the thicket by its horns, could he revisit his country and find us giving up colored citizens to be freely slain and burned, their blood and ashes still cementing the Union, would feel himself a pilgrim sojourning in a strange land on his way to seek the land of his promise. Alas, the promises of the sword are always broken. Always. End of chapter 32, part 2